0: Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. For this episode, best-selling author Jody Melman steps into the interrogation room to clear up a few things for us. Jody earned a Bachelor of Arts and Juris Doctor degrees from Syracuse University and a Master's degree in English Literature from Eastern Michigan. She's since been recognized for her expertise and professional contributions to the legal and broadcasting fields and has served on the adjunct faculty at the University of Detroit Mercy Law School and Marist College. In 2011, Jody founded the Hudson Valley Fiction Writers Workshop to help aspiring authors in that region. In 2017, she served as a Thriller Fest panelist and regularly contributes to Sisters in Crime's quarterly newsletter entitled Sync. Her debut novel is called The Midnight Call, and it released last May. It's been shortlisted for the Clue Award and received a first-place blue ribbon for Best Police Procedural. Welcome to Raiders on the Beat, Jody. Thanks for making time to join us this morning.
1: Good morning, Gavin. How are you?
0: I'm doing absolutely fantastic. I uh, understand we're road tripping together this morning.
1: Yes, we are. I'm on my way to Sy- back to Syracuse for my uh, law school reunion. So we're, you're my road trip buddy.
0: <laughs> Perfect. I'll, uh, I'll bring. <laughs> I'll, I'll bring the. Uh, the I guess this time of morning a thermos of coffee for us.
1: That sounds good to me.
0: <laughs> uh, I recently dove into the Midnight Call, and it's an incredible story. Uh, for readers who are new to you, what would you like them to know about this release?
1: Well, it's interesting because. I really have been working on this book for, since 1969. And it starts back in 1969, because at that time I was in junior high school and I had a really great teacher named Al Fentris. And everybody loved him. It was extremely popular. We were studying world history. And for example, if we were studying India, we'd have a huge Indian feast. If we were studying American history, he'd show up in class dressed as, you know, Robert E. Lee. I mean, he was really... He really engaged the students and we all really admired him. Yeah. I want to fast forward to 1979 and in 1979, I just graduated from law school. I came home, opened up the Poughkeepsie journal and there's this picture on the front page. And the headline is teacher held in students shooting. And it turns out that he was accused of murdering a kid who was trespassing through his yard. So that story was something that really nagged at me over the years. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, I, I knew the, uh, obviously I knew the killer. Turns out that I knew the family of the, the, the teenager who had been murdered. I knew all the judges. I knew all the police officers. So this was a story that really kind of hit me hard. Absolutely. I mean, as you can imagine, yeah. being, having had this guy as my teacher in junior high school. So over the years, I followed the case, and it was a case that was very interesting, and I'm sure your readers will be interested to know that this was the first case in the United States where a uh, plea of insanity was, ex- was accepted by a judge, wow. and what that means is that prior to this time, Gavin, in order for someone to uh, assert an insanity plea, that was based upon a decision of the trier of fact be it a jury or a judge, so you can see this was a radical change in the law, where a defendant came in, entered that plea, and it was accepted by the court.
2: So wow, that's incredible.
1: Th- it's incredible, and basically, the uh, Mr. Fentress was acquitted of the tr- of the murder charges as a result of this insanity plea, and he was institutionalized in a mental institution here in New York in New York State. And what that means is that every two years, he can petition to be released. So his next next, uh, available petition is April of 2020. So you can see this is a story that started for me in 1969, continued to 1979, and to this day was a story that was really interesting to me. So that became the seed for The Midnight Call.
0: Wow, that's incredible, fascinating personal connection that I didn't expect. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> uh, much like my professional life is as, as a cop, uh, attorneys come in a wide range of specialties and, you know, everyone has to know enough about tort law to pass their, their JD and, and the bar exam, but there's a mile of difference right. in you know, the daily life and expertise of, you know, a corporate insurance lawyer and a criminal defense attorney. And I really right. liked how your background added such authenticity to this story as the main character, you know, struggles to help, her mentor, but ultimately has to admit she doesn't have the chops to take the lead in this thing.
1: Right. She really, she doesn't. And, you know, as an attorney, one of the things that you operate on is your instinct and your gut. And I remember when I would get phone calls in the middle of the night, let's say a client was uh, arrested for speeding and they would call Mm -hmm. panic and call me in the (laughs) middle of the night. I mean, it was like, really, it was like a switch that goes off in an attorney's head. And all of a sudden, you're in a mode where the client comes first, and you have to do whatever needs to be done to help that person in distress. And mm-hmm. that's the beginning of this book. There's the first line of the book is, I think I've killed someone. This, my protagonist, Jesse Martin, gets a phone call in the middle of the night. Yes. And so immediately, she switches into attorney mode, even though she's not totally prepared and doesn't know what she's risking, doesn't know the consequences.
0: Yeah, and and also very pregnant, and, you know, she has a lot going on in her life at the moment that this happens.
1: And, you know, I I wrote the character that way because, in reality, we all have a ton of things happening in our lives at the same time. I mean, when we go into a crisis mode, we can't ignore the fact that, you know, we have kids, we have a house, we've got bills to pay, we've Mm -hmm. got, you know, parents to deal with. I mean, we all live multidimensional lives. And that's what I wanted my protagonist to have to deal with, everything, all the stresses in her life, in addition to having to deal with um, the situation where her mentor calls and asks for her help.
0: Yeah, and I think that's one of the things in, in a well-crafted character that, that makes them relatable to uh, to the reader and helps the reader you know, really envision that person and, and bring them to life. And when a writer can put all those things together, it works so incredibly well, and it's such a pleasure to read. I, I'm so grateful you did that.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, my goal was to create three-dimensional characters, and my, my other goal was that when you're writing um, from a protagonist's point of view, especially in a crime novel, mm-hmm. there are things that, you're, that your protagonist, that Jesse, didn't know. So I had to bring in... I wanted to give the reader... An insider's view of the criminal defense system. So I had to bring in other characters who could fill in those gaps. So we have Hal Samuels, who's the assistant district attorney, and then we have the unscrupulous criminal defense attorney, um, <laughs> Jeremy Kaplan, because you know we needed to find out. I wanted to to have. Yeah, as I said, a three hundred and sixty degree view mm-hmm. of this crime, and so that the reader gets a full view as to what's going on, and these three characters are in possession of knowledge that the others don't have, so and everybody's contributing to the story
0: and that's something I, I very deliberately wanted to bring up with you on this is is point of view, and you know obviously you discussed some of the some of the limitations of of writing in in, in first person um, right I wondered. As I was reading through this, if you had always deliberately chosen a point of view for this book, or if the characters kind of sussed that out for you as they were revealing themselves to you?
1: Well, you know, as a writer, I'm also a reader. And in reading the genre, um, I realized it's going to be very difficult to write a first person narrative for mm-hmm. this type of book. So, I think it was the nature of the crime that required me to tell it from three points of view. Originally, I had four points of view. I also grown in the psychic. The prosecution, and you're getting. Uh, basically the, the uh, independent witness, which is Jesse, mm-hmm. who gets kind of you know, caught up in the, the whole maelstrom of the murder.
2: Yeah,
0: and I, I think that it's uh, going to be a, a really incredible book to, to finish and get through. I'm, I'm really excited to see how this thing ends.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> it's, it's funny. The last line of the book is something I put in at the last moment. Um, And that is the line that when I meet people who read the book, they say to me, oh my God, what's going to happen next? (laughs) So hopefully I was successful and hopefully you'll enjoy, enjoy it when you get to the end of the book.
0: Yeah, I, uh, when I was at at Thriller Fest this year um, for our podcast network and uh, when, uh, when you got up and, and talked about, about your book and your experience, I'm like, you know, I, I definitely need to, need to see about getting her on the show this book seems like an incredible story.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, Thriller Fest was a really – it was an, an amazing experience for me this year because mm-hmm. I was a debut author. Yes. And as a debut author, as you've, as you've indicated, every author gets to stand up and give a spiel about their book. Yes, And one of the things that we were told was to talk about ourselves, not talk about the book. <laughs> <laughs> and I think everybody kind of violated that rule, but it was a lot of fun. It really yes. was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, it was. Now, this, the book does seem to be a little bit of a Venn diagram of a few different kind of thriller suspense subgenres. And I, I wondered where you think it should be shelved at Barnes & Noble and, and whose books you want to see on either side of yours.
1: Well, I think I'm in the same genre as somebody like Laura Lippmann mm-hmm. because it's a, domestic, it's a domestic story because it's about, I think, people that love one another. Um, I would love to be on the same shelf as Carol Goodman and Jenny Milchman, who are two writers that I really enjoy. Um, I would have to say that if you were to, to ask me to pick one thing, I would definitely say it was a legal thriller. You know, of course, mm-hmm. I can never compete with someone like, um, uh, like John Grisham or Hank Filippi Ryan mm-hmm. or um, Marsha Clark. But the book is part of the book is in that genre. And I wanted to write a book that crossed genres. Yes. Because, again, as I said, I think that everybody's got a multi dimensional life. Um, but that's a very good question. That's the first time anybody's ever asked me that question
0: i i I try to sneak a few in that maybe nobody's gotten before
1: <laughs> I like that one Gavin that's a good one
0: now, uh legal thrillers is, is um you've kind of defined the the main body of this one uh, they're they're really fascinating to me because I think uh first off, most people kind of like cop work most people really don't know that much about attorneys and what you actually do and and what your day to day life is like um but also legal thrillers force almost all the attorneys into some precarious legal or moral position and they somehow have to come out of this thing on the other side both you know ethically unscathed and professionally sound and uh, I wonder as you wrote this story how you kind of wrestled with creating these obstacles uh, to make sure that uh, your characters could overcome them in such a way that they could continue on as attorneys
1: well, what was interesting about writing the book, and I, since I'd never written a novel before, um, I really didn't know, honestly, what I was doing. But I knew that I wanted to, at first I wanted to write about um, the ethical uh, considerations of an attorney, as you're saying. Yes. Um, in New York State, we have a provision of the law. It's called the Civil Practice Law and Rules, the CPLR. And Section 45 is dedicated to, they call them um, privileged communications. Mm. Okay. And what that means is that they are, it's kind of an evidentiary rule that prohibits people from revealing competences. Okay?
2: Sure. So,
1: for example, a, one spouse cannot testify against another spouse. Mm-hmm. A doctor cannot testify and, and reveal the competences of a client, nor can an attorney reveal the confidences of a client. And that was something that I really wanted to explore in the book, that when we are told a secret as an Mm -hmm. attorney or as a person under the law, what are our restrictions in being able to reveal those confidences? So as I was writing the book, I I struggled with that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a, I have a, I read a, a crime series based on, on my work as a cop, but I, I last year started writing a, a conspiracy series based on, on that very question of uh, the main characters, uh, a, uh, a parish priest who hears things in confession that infuriate him. Um, and he has to deal ethically with how, how to resolve that and maintain his vows. And I think, you know, when we put characters in those kind of precarious spots, it's much more interesting as as a reader, but also I, I think you know explores some of those uh, uh, some of those parts of the human experience that we can all relate to, but no one really likes to talk about that much.
1: Well, you know, especially uh, when you're talking about a priest or you're talking about an attorney, you're talking about their being able to strip them of their livelihood mm-hmm. should they should they you know reveal confidences that they're not. Permitted to reveal, mm-hmm. and what also inspired me to con- contain that in this, or, or to represent that in this book, mm-hmm. was the fact that in the true, the true crime upon which I was basing it, this centrist case, um, there was an attorney who did get a call in the middle of the night, and there was, uh, there was litigation that evolved around trying to dismiss the charges, claiming that that attorney had violated attorney-client privilege. Wow. So. That was something, yeah, I mean, it does happen, mm-hmm. um, and especially, and I really wanted to bring that in the novel and have Jesse be challenged as to question whether she, wh- whether Terrence, who's the killer, called her as a friend or called her for legal advice. Yeah,
2: and,
0: and that's
1: the real conflict.
0: And that's a really important question. You know that that's something that would absolutely be, uh, as you as you pointed out, would have have to be sussed out through the through the process.
1: And it's a very gray area in this particular mm-hmm. book because yeah. of the relationship, a prior relationship that she had with her mentor and her teacher. Was how was he calling her? And as it turns out, um, in the case, uh, the real life case, um, and also in my situation, they were. It was held that um, Jesse did not violate her attorney client privilege because the killer had independently admitted to her father that um, and to, to um, her partner that he'd committed the crime.
0: Yeah, and uh, you know, that's, it seems like that would be um, something of uh, oh, the it's very early and I'm already blanking on this. That's incredible. Uh, Inevitable discovery. That's what I'm looking at. Okay. Yeah. something Related to that, that, uh, that topic. Now, obviously I I don't expect you would have to do a whole lot of research based on your expertise and also your, your personal involvement a relation with the, the original inspiration for this. Um, but I wonder for aspiring writers who are trying to write a legal thriller how do you recommend they go about research or making sure that their their story is authentic and, and won't have you know a, an attorney such as yourself throwing it against the wall at two a.m. because? They
1: <laughs> well, for a legal thriller, I think that people will just have to attend court and see how see how the courtroom operates. Mm-hmm. But it depends upon the type of case they would like to write about. For example, divorce law is something that that I practiced for many years. And that's something that would really make a great novel, you know, a a divorce and and a crime situation. But I think for for someone who is not a lawyer, they really have to attend court and find out exactly how the the legal system operates. And and one of the things that, that I did in this book was that I knew that there were going to be medical issues and psychiatric issues and police procedural issues which there sure, no expertise in at all. So what I did was I called friends who were doctors, who were cops, who were psychiatrists, and sat down with them and, and kind of, I they throw this spaghetti on the wall and see what sticks. You know, my advice to uh, writers is to really look around their community and look around their friends and, and talk to the people that they know or believe would have, Um, expertise in the areas that they would like to write about. I mean, I did that and I, and most writers that I speak to do the same thing because we, we all can't be experts in everything.
0: No. Yeah. And, you know, and that's like, we discussed a little bit earlier. There's, you know, all manner of specializations in the, in the practice of law, there's all manner of specializations in cop work and medical work. Like, you know, you don't go to a podiatrist for heart problems and, you know, you don't uh, generally go to a SWAT cop because you need a thorough burglary investigation done. So
1: Exactly. Exactly. And that's part of the fun of it. You know, yeah. Part of the fun of, of writing a novel is doing the research mm-hmm. and learning, learning about other areas. And what's also kind of cool is the fact that to some degree you want to educate your readers. I mean, we all like to walk away from a book. Knowing not only that we've had emotional connection to the characters, but learning, learning a little bit about a different field, whether it's a, a different historic period of time or another country or an exotic country, places that we're never going to be able mm-hmm. to go in our lifetime. And that's where that's the connection that the writer has with the reader. And that's what research can really, you know, can really bring color to the novels that we're writing.
0: Yeah, it's uh, traveling without a passport.
1: Exactly. Exactly. I mean, we've all done it, right?
0: Yes, absolutely. Uh, If you can talk a little bit about your creative process, if, you know, do you outline or are you a pantser? What's the bones, I guess, of how this thing went from an idea back in, you know, all those years ago in 1979 until publication and release this year?
1: Well, I definitely am an outliner. And the outline helps me, I mean, and I think that's part of my training as an attorney, Mm-hmm. That, you know, everything is very sequential in a case. And so everything became very sequential when I was writing the book. Um, but within that, I allow myself certain flexibilities because I know this is going to sound crazy. But as you're writing, the characters want to take you in different directions. Mm-hmm. So you really can't be married to the outline. Um, it's a very fluid, organic structure for me. Uh, Because, I mean, there are parts parts of the book where characters are walking down the street, and does Hal go left? Does Hal go right? I had him going right. He decided on the page to go left, which took me in an entirely different direction. Mm -hmm. Yes. So you have to be flexible. I mean, that's, again, part of the fun of writing. You never know where you're going to end up. Except I knew, you know, you know A and B. I mean, you know what I mean? You know A and you know Z, how you get there changes.
0: Yeah, you can't sacrifice the great for the good. Right. Great but,
1: for the yeah, good, right. Yeah, solidly right. sticking
0: to uh, to an outline when inspiration hits in the middle of that process. Um, well, you
1: know, to this to this day, if I've got an outline, and sometimes like in the middle of the night, I'll wake up and I'll write something down mm-hmm. and that will again change uh, the story. But, you know, as you said, it's all for the great. I'm willing to sacrifice the good for the great.
0: You talked about being inspired by the story quite some time ago. I, I wonder mm-hmm. when you actually decided you wanted to write about it, um, and if you had a writing mentor that helped you along the way?
1: I didn't have a writing mentor, but um, I did some other writing. Well, as you mentioned, I I got my Master's in English Literature Mm -hmm. when I really started to think about becoming serious about writing. I didn't want to get an MFA because, to me, um, uh, the program didn't fit as well as learning about other great works of literature mm-hmm. and being inspired by other writers. But to really answer your question, <clears throat> in 2010 was when I really sat down and put the pen and, you know, put the pen to the page and my fingers on the keyboard. Before that I'd written some nonfiction books. I wrote uh, two guides to the uh, Broadway theater called Seats New York. So oh, I was wow. dabbling in nonfiction. Yeah. For a while. And then I decided that the story was something I really wanted to tell, and that was in 2010. Yeah. And it took me about three or four years to write the book.
0: And that's one of the recurring themes of this podcast is that it only takes about a decade of nonstop, consistent blood, sweat, and tears to become an overnight success, right? And, you know, that, that definitely seems to be from, with the exception, I think, of one lightning strike I've had on the show, um, almost everyone has had multiple years, if not multiple decades into a novel or into their writing career before they get published or before they start getting attention, before they become a bestseller. And, you know, it's definitely not, um, I think, for someone who's expecting to write one book um, and walk away with, uh, with seven figures and retire on a beach.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. If you talked to, to some people like Steve Barry or mm-hmm. Jenny Milkman, they had written seven or eight novels before that next, before they were first published. Yes. So you you know, people have really spent a long time. I mean, I feel very fortunate that this was my first novel and I was able to get it published, you know, that, um, but I think I paid my dues writing nonfiction mm-hmm. yes. and writing a lot of other things. But again, um, I feel very fortunate to be published because I was discovered in the Twitter <laughs> pit contest. <laughs>
2: That's can you fantastic. believe that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd never been on Twitter. I had to ask my son to start an account for me, and I'd read about um, hashtag PitchMad, which is run a couple times a year. And just on a fluke, I decided, you know, what the heck? Um, I have this. I have a book here. Let mm-hmm. me see if I can do anything with it. And I put it out there on Twitter. And the next thing I know, I, you know, got an a email from Immortal Works. They were interested. And it progressed from there, it progressed very quickly. They discovered me in March. And by July, I had a publishing contract. And then and the, following, the following June was when the book came out. So, I mean, yeah. it's, it's, traditional publishing is really a thing of the past. People can be discovered in many different ways. Yes. Just like, you know, YouTube, you know, just like Justin Bieber was discovered on YouTube, you know. Yeah. And listen, you know, it's, 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 it's not the same as it used to be. There are a lot of ways for people to get discovered, but it's not overnight. It's really no. not overnight.
0: No. And I wonder, you know, now that uh, about, Oh, by how, how are we doing on speed we're, we're not, we're not speeding too much right now.
1: No, we're doing, we're doing good. <laughs> All right. Fantastic.
0: Safety first. Um, now, now that we're old friends and, and road trip buddies, Jody, I, I wonder if you have a favorite lawyer joke.
1: Oh, I haven't. Oh, I haven't thought about that in a long time. No, I don't.
2: <laughs>
1: uh, I really haven't. You, you caught me off guard.
0: <laughs> oh, I uh, I actually had to had to look some up because I I had to have something handy in case you did, and I had to have something that was clean enough to put on the air.
1: <laughs> okay, okay. Tell me a lawyer joke.
0: Well, I, I actually lo- I looked up lawyer and cop jokes. In all fairness, um, okay. But uh, so the, uh, the defense attorney walks in and talking to his, his client and says, you know, I've got good news and bad news. Client says, well, okay, well, give me the, the bad news first. Defense attorney says, well, the, your, your blood was all over the crime scene and uh, it definitely proves that you did it. Client says, well, what's the good news? Attorney says, well, your cholesterol is like
1: 130. Oh, that's a good one. That's very good. <laughs> that's a yeah. good one.
0: And for the the cop joke, uh, an attorney, a politician, and a drunk just left a Yankees game together. Who's driving?
1: I'm gonna say the politician. The cop. The cop. (laughs) Oh, very good, very good. Yeah, I I didn't
0: say they weren't biased. I just said they were clean.
1: (laughs) Very good. I like
2: that. uh, You're quite
1: the gesture. (laughs)
0: Well, the the jokester who has to look them up on the internet, because uh, (laughs) Uh, I understand you also do a lot of philanthropic work, and especially around writing. Um, Do you want to talk about that for a minute?
1: Sure. You know, I believe that we all have to give back. And I'm fortunate to be um, on the board of a foundation called the Dyson Foundation, which operates in the seven counties of the Hudson Valley, the Family Foundation. And that afforded me the opportunity to go to the library, our greater Poughkeepsie Library district, and say to them, what can I do to help you? Mm-hmm. And we had a conversation. And I remember when I was growing up, my first job uh, was working at the library and riding around in the bookmobile.
0: Oh, do you wow. remember
1: bookmobile? Yes,
0: absolutely. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and so I said to them, well, you know, I had this great experience when I was a kid. What do you think about resurrecting the bookmobile?" So they thought about it and they investigated it and they got the price. And so I'm pleased to announce that, that based upon a grant that I was able to to give the library, along with them raising money from the friends of the library, that the Poughkeepsie is going to have a bookmobile. Oh,
2: that's and fantastic. And what that allows
1: them to do, yeah, is to bring, I mean, in Poughkeepsie, a lot of, there's uh, the mass transportation does it, but you really don't have it. Oh no, It's difficult yeah. for people yeah. to bring, their kids to the library, and for them to go to the library themselves. So this allows the library to do outreach, and to mm-hmm. go to festivals, and to sign kids up for library cards. And it's just to me one an amazing opportunity, and i was so proud to be part of that.
0: Absolutely, that's really fantastic work, and I, I think that's one of the things that, you know, really gets so uh, undervalued in all of our discussion about, you know, education funding and, and priorities, and you know, reading in general, not just for education, but also for, for entertainment, I think is an invaluable thing for people to do um, for, you know, mental development. But I think it's an incredibly wonderful thing. And I, I'm really glad that you've been able to do that.
1: Well, you know, I, I think that as a writer, there are two institutions that really help us outside of the reading public. And that is, one is the library, because it's an amazing resource for research which I did a lot of at our local library, going through the microfilm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also, as you say, provides entertainment. I mean, they have they have programs, they have free movies, mm-hmm. uh, they have speakers, and it's all free. So, you know, if people can donate their time or donate their money, that's an institution that's really worth supporting. Another institution, and I, I don't know whether it's an institution, are independent bookstores. Yes. You know, I mean, Amazon is great, but it's really the indie bookstores that add flavor to our community. And I believe that, you know, especially when I've gone on my book tour, I've always liked to stop and, to, um, and speak at the, the small bookstores. It's really the heart of our community. I,
0: I wonder, because writers are also pretty ferocious readers, if you have yeah. a favorite detective or investigator that you like to read or to watch in uh, in TV or film.
1: Well, right now, I'm telling you, I'm hooked on... Um, on Robert Galbraith's series, which is uh, the strike series. Corm- I, I, I think it's Cormian or Fermanent Strike. And Robert Galbraith is the pseudonym for the mm-hmm. A.K. Yes. And just as she was wonder- a wonderful writer for Harry Potter, she's an incredible re- a writer for adult crime fiction. And she gets pretty bloody. She gets pretty gross. It's pretty sexy. And mm-hmm. it's really a great read. I've always loved P.D. James, and I've always loved Louise Penny. And I probably have read everything that those, uh, that those writers have written. Uh, Steve Barry, again, yes. international writer.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I mean, he's a great writer. He's a great friend. Um, and he's been a mentor to me, I can tell you that.
2: Yes, but, that is something. you know,
1: those he... are the people that I, that I really like. As soon as I get really excited when, you know, a new Robert Galbraith or a new Louise Penny. And there is a brand new Louise Penny. A better man, which is out now and on
0: the bestseller list. Oh, fantastic! I'll make sure to include that in the show notes.
1: Oh, it's great! It's great.
0: Now, I asked this this last question of all the authors who come on the show, um, and, and based on that that last answer, Jody, but God forbid it should come to pass. But if you were to wake up tomorrow and find that you've been murdered, what fictional investigator, assassin, or revenge artist would you assign to your own case?
1: I would assign her Kirk- Hercule
0: Perrault. <laughs> Excellent choice. He's probably uh, pretty high up on the leaderboard. He's a popular pick.
1: Well, he's got such flair, panache, and, um, I mean, he's, he's, he is the ultimate detective. I'm sure, do a lot of people pick Holmes as the detective?
0: Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, lately it's kind of been a task force of someone like uh, Perot or Holmes, uh, combined with like a Mitch Rapp character, just in case the bad guy yeah. gets away. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Apparently, that's just interesting.
0: Yeah, apparently writers don't like the prospect of being murdered and unavenged, so...
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. I once had a case, if I could uh, digress a little bit. Absolutely. And I was representing, it was a matrimonial, and I was representing the wife of a quote-unquote, well-connected man. Uh, he reminded me a lot of Tony Soprano. Okay. And I stepped in for, a, I took the case after another attorney resigned because he found his cat dead in his mailbox. Oh, my God. So grew, wow. gruesome things do happen in real life.
0: Yeah, that's, that's terrible.
1: Yes, it was I... terrible. It was really horrible. But it was a good case, and I uh, resolved it to my client's liking. That was the most important thing.
0: Perfect. Yeah, and uh, you know, and eke I'm out still
1: a still alive, a, to tell
0: the tale. Yeah, that's a, absolutely, and e- eke out a, a bit of uh, retribution and vengeance for, for the apparent ill acts of uh, of a, a well-connected man.
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly.
0: Actually, that would be a decent book title: "A Well-Connected Man."
1: Yes, that's very good. I like that. Given I'll all have kinds to remember
0: of, that. yeah, we're giving all kinds of freebies out on the air today. You'll have to have to write that one quick. <laughs> I, I greatly appreciate you spending time with us uh, this morning, Jody, and sharing your expertise. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you,
1: Gavin. It's been a great fun. I really appreciate you as uh, my co-pilot on this trip, and um, I look forward to speaking to you again when I when I have another book.
0: I'd love to have you back on. That'll be fantastic, Jody. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks again, Gavin. Have a great day.
0: You too. You've been listening to Writers on the Beach, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been attorney, legal expert, and acclaimed novelist Jody Miller. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.